Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an war, sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and as usual, we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. Before we begin this week, I wanted to issue a correction and a little bit more background information about one of the points that we raised in a previous episode. While Chris and I were discussing the air war, I accidentally referred to Paul von Hindenburg as Otto von Bismarck. For those of you who are familiar with German history, you will recognize that as a rather significant misstatement. Bismarck was the chancellor responsible for the unification of Germany in the late 19th century, while Hindenburg was the Reich president who appointed Hitler in the 1930s. I am going to fall back on the excuse that the Nazis named a battleship and an airship after these two men, respectively. So please, accept my apologies. In the same episode, we also discussed the origins of the stab in the back myth. I did a bit more digging into the origins of the term because I like the history of ideas and I was not particularly satisfied with what sounded to be a rather apocryphal story about its origins, as Chris suggested. And it turns out that the term stab in the back was already in circulation in the memoranda of Ludendorff's Supreme Army Command in 1917, prior to the end of the war. The story of the British General Sir Neil Malcolm suggesting the term to Ludendorff over dinner at the British military mission is just that. With that out of the way, we can move on to this week's episode where we'll be discussing Ian Kershaw's article, Working Toward the Fuhrer. Now, this is another one of the touchstone theories in understanding how power, specifically administrative power, was exercised within the Third Reich. It ties into a number of other important ideas about analyzing the flow of power in the Third Reich, such as polycracy, the rule of many competing power centers, and the role of the Gao leaders, the regional party bosses, in developing initiatives to advance the goals of National Socialism within their own peculiar regional context. This ties in closely with Kershaw's idea of Hitler as a charismatic ruler, but instead of focusing on Hitler's role specifically within the system, it takes a broader structural view of how that power was exercised by the state party apparatus. Without further ado, though, the news. All right, so Ryan's got a bit of news for us here today. Uh, Ryan, what are you going to be telling us about? Well, today I have a conference report that is entitled The Dark Side of Belle Epoque Europe, Political Violence and Armed Associations Before the First World War. So this may seem like it's reaching back a little bit far compared to a lot of the other things that we do on this podcast. Although, Chris, as you know, I, uh, I, I'm always busting out my charts about, you know, income variations and stagnation after the, the long depression in the 1800s and all that kind of stuff, right, as the lead up to the First World War. But if we're going back to like long term roots of political violence, social disintegration and destabilization, 
prior to the First World War that basically just put things on hold and made them really bad for the interwar period, you have to start looking back to the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century. It's called Belle Epoque. Here, here. <laughs> so in that note, when this conference report popped up in my feed from HNET, I was really excited. And it was put together by, uh, I'm butchering names here, Amerigo Caruso and Claire Moralon. So the conference happened just recently at Universitat Padova, and it's been funded by the European Research Council. It's dealing with the question of armed associations in Europe before the First World War. Well, for those of you who don't know, this is important because Belle Epoque Europe, outside of the colonial space, is often presented as sort of the height of uh, a period of peace, progress, and there were major issues in society, but they were all being worked out. And then the war came along and things just went to pot. So looking at what the actual nature of armed political violence was before the First World War can give us an indication of why it looked the way it did in the interwar era. The opening address of the conference was given by Amato Milan, and he provided the keynote address for the conference. And his thesis was that pre-World War I, the Belle Epoque, is conceived as a period of peace and progress juxtaposed against the instability and violence of the war and its aftermath. So he argued that the degree of pre-war violence is often underestimated and that actually what we're dealing with are many long-term trends that are merely interrupted by the war, put on hold rather than created by it. He finds that violence was regarded as a legitimate response to internal enemies of the state that was necessary to instill appropriate patriotism. This foreshadows in many ways the kind of militias that you see in Germany, the Fry Corps, and, and things like this. And he also found that widespread conflict and reconfiguration of social hierarchies generated violent responses from the state during this period. So when we're looking back, we get a prelude for what the interwar period looks like already prior to the First World War. And the middle classes and men particularly were increasingly involved in volunteer police forces, uh, strike-breaking groups, and civil guards. So the project that he's setting out here that's been funded by the European Research Council is to analyze the role of non-state armed associations. One of the first presenters, Alexandro Salupo, talked about the great unrest from 1910 to 1914, so the four years before the First World War. And he was looking at it specifically in the context of how, how the crisis of this period rocked confidence in British society and social cohesion. Now, the period prior to the First World War in Britain was a period of intense labor militancy. There were uprisings of some 4 million people and the upper class actually feared at the time that their society was going to disintegrate. Now, interestingly enough, this resulted in middle-class responses. Labor militancy provoked the formation of strike-breaking groups, such as the volunteer police force, which was originally constituted as a way to protect property and secure middle-class neighborhoods. Now, the volunteer police forces received support in conservative public opinion, 
And they were actually tolerated by authorities who, although they were more skeptical of these paramilitary groups, nevertheless held the had the perception that volunteer police forces were necessary because current police force, the state police force, was inadequate to control labor unrest. Now, this is quite significant if you're familiar with the history of Germany because, you know, you look at the interwar era and the Freikorps militias, or those groups are oftentimes forward as historians as the direct precursor to the Nazis, rightly or wrongly, as a lot of other research, recent research is showing. Regardless, Arnaud Dominique Haute argued that the historiography portrays Belle Epoque France, particularly, on the other hand, as a largely peaceful period of democratic reform with some tensions from strikes and anti-Semitism, but in a way that vastly underplays the political violence and the, the presence and role of political violence in the Third Republic. The Third Republic was adaptable and it maintained control in response to challenges from the radical left and radical right with moderate forms of repression at that time. Now, despite fears of revolution in the Third Republic, moderates and the bourgeoisie ultimately felt protected by state authorities. The enemies of the state, the anarchists on the left and an emerging far right wing, uh, remained suppressed by official efforts, and thus the middle class and the bourgeoisie never felt threatened uh, in, this, in the same way, nor was the social and political order ever really challenged in the same way it was in other countries. The French state was effective, and therefore private security and non-state armed groups never emerged in France in the same way as they did in Britain. Uh, Romain Barnet from uh, Padova challenged what the previous speaker was saying to some degree, not, not directly, but Bonnet suggested that this was not, however, due to an absence of political violence or an absence of non-state violence. The Jaune strike-breaking movement had national influence and a clear corporatist, nationalist, and anti-socialist ideology at this time. So the middle classes were taking part in the control of labor unrest in France as well. And the movement counted somewhere between 120,000 and 375,000 members, according to contemporary sources. So that's, uh, there, there's more there. And the conference looks incredibly interesting. And it's a project that I hope continues. I want to hear more about. But that's, that's what I took out of it for today. I so what's uh, your, your takeaway from reading about this conference? Do we overemphasize how violent the 20th century was? Do we want to see it as, a, as an aberration rather than continuity of things that have been going on for a long time? Well, if I were to fit it into, I think that I, I would take your second point. There's definitely a tendency to try and treat everything that happened after the First World War and 1945 as a separate period that we can break off and forget about the, the so-called Schlussstrich in German history and in European history more broadly. Uh, this is this is new to me. Uh, I, I'm, I have been aware of political violence in the in Belle Epoque Europe and early 20th century Europe, but most like I'm mostly familiar with the traditional historiography in this respect, right? Like there's discussion about self-help movements, progressive politics, right? Like you get social security introduced in Germany at this time, you get the 
self-help movements and kind of socialist self-organization that begins to do things like have clean water so you're not getting cholera anymore or introducing trams between working class suburbs and the places where they're going to work. Uh, you know, the social sciences emerge. It's portrayed as a period of immense social unrest, but one that is held in check through various progressive movements. It's never one. The, the anarchists don't seem to receive much attention outside of Russia, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, I was going to say that, uh, that this kind of political violence in this period uh, in Russia is nothing surprising at all. And so to hear it talked about in Western Europe in the same way, particularly the scale of this, these uprisings prior to the First World War, right? Those are new events to me. And uh, the, particularly the middle class response to them, the middle class involvement in patriotic violence and political violence, explicitly political violence, is generally something that's portrayed as a consequence of the First World War, right? Like it's something that creates this, the, the war radicalizes people, then they come back, then there's a financial crisis. And as a result of all of these pressures, people uh, form armed bands and try to either break down the state or kill those who are trying to take down the state. So this, uh, yeah, there's a long-term continuity here that is dealing with some long-term financial issues and you know social inequalities, concentrations of wealth that are being talked about at the end of the 19th century. I just didn't realize how widespread political violence was in response to those before the war. So the, the war is no less important in terms of brutalizing an entire generation who are coming back from it, but it doesn't have the same causative, the, the emphasis of the roots of where these problems come from, I think need to be pushed back into the 19th century definitively. If this is the type of research that's coming out. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from, from what you're saying that these presenters have shown that the root of this violence was a backlash against labor movements. So it, it was class conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Late 19th century class conflict that there is the rising inequality stokes labor militancy. And then these researchers are looking at state and middle-class reactions to that. And that's particularly important when you start to get into I mean, the Freikorps militias in, after the first are treated as a consequence of the First World War. But if the middle class are already being engaged in in political violence and strike breaking, and there are already these fears of social dissolution, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of cultural themes going around in the end of the 19th century that deal with the idea of rebirth through destruction. And there's the famous quote about I forget if it's a French or a German soldier going off to war saying that they longed they longed to be released from an overly fragile world to just break something. It's a bad paraphrase, but something along those lines. Uh -huh. You know, um, more pieces of the puzzle here. More pieces of the puzzle here. Interesting though, eh? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't aware uh, of any of this. Like, like I said, I know that there was plenty of political violence uh, in Russia 
but you know that this I haven't encountered it at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, what's your what is your narrative of late nineteenth century Europe? Oh God, don't ask me that question. <laughs> Broad strokes here. We know we know where your heart lies. A, it's a a continent coming to terms with uh, industrialization and urbanization and uh, <laughs> sowing its oats overseas. Yeah, violence is treated as a colonial phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and there's there's no question that you know all of these European countries were very violent in the colonial sphere, but you know. I guess I, I always thought of it as, as something of an outlet for social tensions at home that were suppressed yeah. at home. Yeah. Right. And it turns out not so suppressed. Right. Uh, that's what blows me away. Like it, it, the, the societies are collapsing at the moment that the empire is at its zenith. Right. That's, that's quite remarkable to me because I had the sense that there was this suspended reality and a lot of discontent at the late 19th, early 20th century, but not that things were that far gone, you know? Well, I mean, but I think we do also need to remember just how powerful the impact of Marxism was as Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. and how scary that was even before you had a Soviet union to demonstrate just what could happen if you didn't break up those strikes long enough. Very true. Well, moving swiftly onward to Kershaw, why do people need to know about working towards the fear? Well, working towards the fear is supposed to really explain how the whole regime worked, right? It, it's an alternative to understanding Hitler as a, uh, either a strong dictator or a weak dictator, presenting him as uh, the ideological figurehead, I guess, uh, as presenting Hitler as the core of the system, but not as making decisions himself on policy, just providing guidelines uh, for the people and for you know, the party and the, the government, the state, to follow in the way that they think he would he would act wellspring of authority guiding light of the movement rather than necessarily an actor like a resource to be drawn upon to legitimize rather than one who is an active player well he's not he's not inactive right he's ever present but it's more his image that matters it's more what how people see him or what they need him for uh, than what he's actually doing that's important. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It is cur- incorrect to say that he's not active. He's the one who's formulating the ideas and picking and choosing what the movement stands for, but he's not the one who's going out and writing policy or implementing it in, in, a, more, in a more nuts and bolts kind of way. He's, in, he's setting, like you said, guidelines, policy in only the most aspirational kind of way. Yeah, he's laying out these these grand goals for people to work towards. So how do we begin to break this down? What are the what are the different component parts that explain how what role Hitler then is playing in the system and then what this means for how power is exercised within Nazi Germany? 
Okay, so Kershaw says that uh, Hitler has three functions as the charismatic leader of Germany, right? So he is the unifier, the activator, and the enabler of the people and institutions below him. So his role as a, as a unifier is to be a consensus figure, right? So he's the, he's the center of the movement. He's the one entity that everybody can look to and agree upon that, that we should follow Adolf Hitler. And this is important because uh, after he comes to power, the old way of doing things, the legal, rational structure of the state uh, is starting to break down. And uh, there's a lot of different competing centers of power, but they still can all look to Hitler. So he's, he's the, the final arbiter in, in the case of uh, any dispute, but he's also the person that people can come together behind uh, even when they have disagreements because they all agree that they should try and realize uh, Hitler's vision. Mm-hmm. So it, he could bring together as the unifier people who were otherwise at odds with each other. And that's because he is the bearer of the mission of Nazism. All of this ties in very closely to the early history of the party and the nature of political power in the Nazi movement. The, the, early, the party in the 1920s was divided between two internal wings. Uh, there was sort of a northern power structure and a southern power structure centered around Hitler in Munich. Georg Strassler or the Strassler brothers were representative of this other, this entire other interpretation of Nazism. And Hitler was the one who emerged as the unifier who sort of synthesized this. So it's also very closely tied in with Kershaw's interpretation of of Hitler's unique form of authority. But it's rather than looking at the sociological basis of that authority as in the Hitler myth, in the case of working towards the Fuhrer, we're kind of looking at it as how it functions in terms of a, or as a style of administration. Whereas the Hitler myth is, is more about why people supported Hitler, working towards the Fuhrer is what people did about it once they, they had given their support to Hitler, how that position guided their actions. So we have the unifier to begin with that Hitler represents this figurehead the, the font of all wisdom so far as the ideology and the movement is concerned. And then there is also the activator. Uh, so Hitler as the activator. Okay, once everybody can look to Hitler as the person that brings them together, Hitler gave Germany a vision for the future, a rough blueprint of how Germany was going to move away from the embarrassment and defeat of the First World War and construct their community of the people and form the greater Germany. So this basic vision gave Germans guidelines that they could interpret in in whatever way they chose, really, and act upon to fulfill uh, their own goals. Uh, so that, that's the way that, that he was an activator, that he, he imparted his mission onto everybody else. And different agencies could then try to fulfill their interpretation of his vision 
in their own ways. And some agencies like the SS were more vigorous in pursuing this vision and uh, more radical and were particularly responsive to uh, Hitler's activation on particular questions like those of race. I'm thinking it's also this idea of the activator is very much associated with Gleichschaltung and the bringing into line, the coordination of German society after the Nazis seized power in 1933, that what it does is that it bring, as, as an activator, Hitler serves as this force that can bring civil society in line with the goals of the Nazis. That, as you say, within the party, but also beyond the party, people go out and begin to align their actions toward what they believe Hitler as the leader would want of them. Yes. But it's not always necessarily, not necessarily because people embraced the ideology. The goals laid out by Hitler and and recognized by German society at large could also be taken advantage of uh, for instrumental reasons. Mm-hmm. So if you recognize that maybe you could uh, benefit from your competition, uh, if you're a business person, uh, you could benefit from uh, your competition, uh, which is a, a Jewish-owned business being Aryanized, then maybe you'll get some of that property, or at least you won't have a competitor, then you may be spurred into action, even if even if you're not personally t- uh, terribly anti-Semitic, you might recognize the environment created by Hitler and his regime uh, and act upon it. Mm-hmm. And even then, just to circle back to the Hitler myth, leaving aside more instrumental motives, there are people who are going to identify with Hitler as a strong individual leader, even as they divorce themselves from the party whom they see as radicals. So Hitler serves as an activator for a lot of different ways, unleashing a lot of different social forces. That's kind of simple, right? But that is the core of it. He set a distant, fuzzy finish line and told everybody go, and everybody went. Mm. Ran towards what they believed that finish line to be. So Hitler's role as an enabler is to legitimize actions that are already taken. So people are, are activated by the vision laid out by Hitler. Uh, they go out and try to achieve it. And that effort, whatever the methods, if the ends do appear to be in line with the Nazi vision, then they are legitimized and enabled by, by Hitler, as long as it's, it seems like they are advancing these goals. Kirchhoff's pulling on the Hitler myth here again, Now, in the Hitler myth, Hitler distances himself from unpopular decisions and only claims the popular ones. So as an enabler, his ability to to claim a popular result, like the rearmament policies or the reintegration of the Saarland, things like this, that encourages underlings to go out and search for ways to pursue these broader goals that he's setting. Because although 
Hitler as leader will ultimately take responsibility. They as the person who brings the fait accompli or the solution to whatever problem standing in the way of moving toward the broad goals that he set out is going to be rewarded in the system. This, I think, brings up an interesting question. If these individuals who are pursuing what they see to be policies in line with Hitler's vision, and if successful, policies that will be claimed by Hitler as personal victories, are they, are the, the original actors, are they motivated by truly trying to advance Hitler's vision, or are they trying to advance their interpretation of it? Uh, so I guess what I'm saying uh, is, does this structure, this bureaucratic structure, this way of doing things, empower people to advance their own interpretations and achieve their own goals, and then they kind of, after the fact, once they're endorsed by Hitler, become a part of Nazi canon. Well, this raises the issue of how the Nazi administration actually function and how it has been characterized as a, a sort of polycratic form of administrative control. Because I, I think the question, the question that you're raising really does touch on that issue, right? It, the, this idea of whether or not these people are acting in their own interests and are later recognized or are moving toward a larger goal set by Hitler. So a polycratic structure is a system in which there are many centers of power that are sometimes at odds with each other, uh, sometimes competing with each other, that are not answerable to another authority above them. Well, in this case, there is Hitler himself, but because Hitler is has a hands-off style of rule, uh, and because he didn't take sides in disputes between uh, different agencies, because he, he kind of believed in a Darwinistic approach to allow the strongest to emerge at the top and then, and then support them. And because of that, you have different agencies within the state and the party and the economy that are competing with each other. And they're not all answerable to another force. Right. So we've got democracy, which is rule of the demos, rule of the people. We have a lot of different crassies. So that's the root for power. But you have bureaucracy, which is rule of the desk or, you know, rule, rule through a, a legislative professional administrative class. And then you have polycracy, which is the rule of many. Literally, poly, many, crassy, ruler, power. Well, let me add one thing then to your list of crassies, and that's autocracy. And what's interesting is that Nazi Germany is not really an autocracy, that you know, Hitler can make any decisions that he'd like to, but he generally doesn't. In the way that the party structures itself, after it comes to power in 1933, and the way that it operates before 1933, there is immense responsibility afforded to individual political leaders within the movement. If you want to set up the party in a particular area, then you are responsible for setting up the party in a particular area. And you are the one who's going to be responsible for its function and to a large degree, 
how, excuse me, how you portray and interpret the policies of national socialism within that local area. So this culture of autonomy within the political movement continues in the way that the Nazis begin to approach actual state power. Now, they believe that part of the problem that has put Germany into these dire straits has been that incompetent bureaucrats and overly technical legalities that allow the bad guys to get away scot-free while punishing people who have good intentions are really the core of the problem. So they want to do away with traditional bureaucracy. And instead, what they want to do is they want to replace it with all of these reliable, well-intentioned party men who are going to fulfill these positions of influence. However, once they start actually moving into these positions, what they do is they begin to collect titles. They kind of break down the barriers between the, the traditional state administration and the bureaucracy and the party, which is a political entity and so theoretically should be separate and outside of the state administration. You know, traditional in a, in a legal system or in a legal bureaucratic system of administration, a political party sets policy, but it's up to the state administration to make sure that it's realized. And the party begins to meld those barriers or, and actively break them down so that you get these party party members acquiring titles like trading cards, right? Like I, it, there's kind of this rush in 1933 to get as many different overlapping forms of authority, whether it's the governor of a particular province or the district president of a particular district, you know, you, you collect as many as possible and then you try and create your own new little area of authority based on how many different positions you managed to collect during this period. Yeah, and they, they weren't just spatial areas of authority either, although that, that certainly was one of the arenas uh, where you could become leader of the GAO, the, the party leader of the GAO, uh, you could be district government president. But there's also all kinds of little, not necessarily little, plenipotentiary positions that are created to deal with specific issues. So there's there are different competing agencies, both government and party, in different regions, but then there are also individuals that are charged with specific tasks in, say, the economy. There's the Plieger, who is in charge of coal for all of Germany, or Goering, who's in charge of the four-year plan. So these different projects each have different individuals at the head of them, and these projects encompass all of Germany. Uh, but then in each region, each gallery, each, each district, there are also different political authorities and government authorities. But you also um, made a good point about uh, how these positions aren't, aren't exclusive. You, and, and you can hold more than one at the same time. Some are, are linked the Gauleiter is typically also the Verteidigungskommissar. Uh, so there, there are there are different roles like that 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 can be linked together, but they aren't always. It's very improvised, and as different problems come up, a new position may be created to deal with it, and that new position could compromise the authority uh, of others. Or overlap with it. Yeah. So in, in kind of like you point out with these these positions like Goering and the head of the four-year plan of rearmament, 
these are not traditional positions of authority. They don't have clearly defined responsibilities. What they are told to do is to achieve a particular goal, to increase output by so much. How, what, are your, what are your powers to go and do this? I don't know. We'll figure it out in the process, but you're going to get what you need in order to complete this objective, right? Same thing, the, the commissar or the um, commandant of Bavarian political police. What are your powers? Well, I don't know, but whatever you need to go out and be able to stop a communist uprising in Bavaria, right? But, but no one no one has given these things. They, they can take it by claiming that they have the right to on the basis of this position, often newly created position. Right. And so especially in the first two years, you have what's called the conflict, the, the party-state divide. And the traditional state administration is pushing back against all of these newly created. I, I, they're, they're really more like a, a kind of imperial uh, administrative structure, like something that you would have seen in the British empire, like with the viceroys or the governors or something like that, than the state administration of Prussia and Germany post 1871 as it existed. Right. Like, so it's comes, you have as much power as you can exert. And so the more of these little ballywicks that you can bring into your fiefdom, the more power that you can reasonably exert because you have more administrative control under your belt. And so you can jam up a particular, a particular push by somebody that you don't want to deal with. Right. And you, or you can, you can speed up another one or you can let something go. And so a lot of horse trading ends up happening between leading Nazis at the, the so-called Gao level, the Gao leader level, which is the, the regional party structure. And uh, they, as they start to basically, the, this would be my trading card illusion earlier, but they begin to trade or, or, you know, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours in terms of how I will exercise my power. If you help my initiative go through, I'll help your initiative go through. Or if we have a personal dispute, then I'll, you know, uh, I'll make sure that the bridge gets shut down to your part of town, right? So, uh, why is this important for Kershaw? He says that this competition and disorder, that the polycratic structure of Nazi Germany, led to radicalization, because when you have two, three, four people that have some kind of claim to any decision, the person who can demonstrate that they are achieving Hitler's vision is going to not just gain more personal power, but that, that office that they hold is going to gain influence on that question. Mm -hmm. And because of this, as you have different agencies and different individuals competing, oftentimes it's the one that is most radical that will maintain and expand their power. Well, this comes back to Hitler as unifier, activator, and enabler, and his role that Kershaw positions and sees him fulfilling within the system. Because Hitler serves as a kind of unifier of the party and dictates what its goals are, being able to present your project, your initiative, as being in line with those goals that Hitler has set out lends it a legitimacy that other people are going to be loath to oppose. Your ability to shut a particular initiative down 
if it's grounded in a goal that Hitler has set as something that Germans should be pursuing, is going to be constrained. And then comes down to your ability to back that up with how much of the administrative structure you now control with all of your different titles. But you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's, it's not necessarily making an argument that what you are doing is in line with uh, the, the vision for the German future embodied in Hitler so much as showing that the results you have produced advance that vision. We've talked about the, the Oldenburg crucifix struggle uh, before, and that's a situation where there was pushback from the German people against a policy put in place in a single region to remove crucifixes from the Catholic schools and replace them with uh, pictures of Hitler. Uh, and when there was pushback against that, the policy was scrapped through Hitler's uh, intervention. So results matter, right? Uh, that, that sometimes the, the more radical approach didn't meet success. And there's a drawback from that. Well, one of the core ideas that's been associated with the polycratic administrative structure of Nazi Germany is this idea of the Gau, the political region, as a laboratory of the movement. So what's a Gau leader, Chris? Well, it's a political leader, a party leader, rather than a government leader. So it is a new structure. It's not the old bureaucracy. It's not the old government. It is a Nazi party construction. And it is an individual who is charged with leading a, a Gao, a, a region, a fairly large chunk of territory, and trying to you know, achieve uh, the goals laid out by Hitler in their region. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the equivalent to a, a party provincial or state leader. Like the these, there are thirty-two of them, thirty-five of them. Well, I mean that the numbers fluctuating as uh, new Gao are added with uh, the conquest of Poland, and then I think one or two get get split. Yeah, and one gets merged, um, at least that I know of. But the point is that this is not a large group of individuals. These are these. This is Hitler's inner circle the most dedicated old fighters who have risen to the very top of the party structure. This is the very top of the party structure too, that the, uh, within each Gao there are, you know, there's, there's districts and it goes all the way down to, to the, the block leader, but there really is no one above the Gao leiter in the party. And most of the big name Nazis also are a, a Gao leader in one Gao or another. Mm -hmm. Yes, like Goebbels, who's in charge of the Ministry of Propaganda. He's the Gao leader for Berlin. Uh, you know, uh, Treboven, who's the governor of the Rhine province, is is he Essen or he's around that area? But he was uh, in in absentia for for most of uh, his time. Really? Oh well, there you go. Yeah, learn something new every day. But the Point being that these are not people who are further down the chain and are receiving orders. They're expected to lead and they're expected to exercise autonomy in advancing the party's interests. 
there's this entire idea of leadership of people, Menschenführung, that is also very important to the party. The Gao leaders are supposed to be the ones who have show, a demonstrated capacity for this. In many cases, they're actually the original founders or were part of the original founding of the party in a given area that they then come to control. So, uh, and as a result, they also tend to be the ones who wield the most, the, the biggest collection of presidencies, governorships, and, and various honorific titles, commissariats, things like this. So within their Gao, they wield more or less unchecked authority so far as they can push it or convince others to follow them. Yeah, so uh, there are two particular examples that Kershaw addresses, Forster in West Prussia and Greiser in the Varthagau. And what's interesting about those two places, those two Gao, is that uh, they, were, they were new. They were created after the invasion of Poland. So uh, West Prussia was the chunk that had been Germany before the First World War with the Danzig Corridor uh, that had been uh, given to Poland. And uh, the Warthagau was uh, the southwestern piece of Poland that was going to be part of the Reich, that was going to be annexed into Germany uh, as opposed to the the eastern part of Poland that was occupied and and administered. Mm -hmm. In any case... Uh, so we have Forster and Greiser, who both get a position as the Gao leader in these newly created Gao at the same time. And Hitler gives them a very basic mission that he just asks that after 10 years, they be able to come back to him and say that their Gao is completely German. So, And that means not Polish anymore and free of Jews. So this created a situation where these two guys competed with each other to complete the mission the fastest. They didn't want to wait 10 years to achieve it, and they recognized that the guy next door had the same mission as them, was in more or less the same position. And this spurred radicalization this competition between the two of them. But interestingly, uh, when, for example, Greiser wanted to liquidate uh, 35,000 Poles uh, who had tuberculosis, and he was challenged that you know that was going to make all the, the other Poles uh, angry and that it may produce an uprising, there was, I think, some recognition here that there'd been a pushback against the euthanasia program, the T4 program. Uh, which had resulted in it, in it getting closed down. So there was a worry that if Greiser went ahead with this this liquidation, that there would be pushback there as well. But Greiser responded to that by saying that this question didn't need to get referred to Hitler. Hitler had already laid out the goal for, for the Gao. He'd already said that the mission of this place is to become German. And because Hitler had said this, Greiser himself had the authority to do whatever he thought it was necessary in order to achieve that. And part of the reason why, why he wanted to do it in such a, a brutal and violent way is that he, he saw himself as being in a race with Forster, that he's trying to uh, reach that imaginary far-off finish line, as he's interpreted it from Hitler's mission, the fastest. 
this is where this idea of the Gao as a laboratory for the movement comes from. The, the Gao leader who is charged with advancing the party's interest in the area and are given so much leeway to basically, you know, innovate and come up with whatever solution to whatever problem happens to be plaguing the, the nation at that time and present it to Hitler as the result of their, their wherewithal, their ingenuity, their administration and management of the, of the issue, and then receive further acclaim and further power and further leeway. So the, I, I mean, like in, in the West for Groe, in the middle of the nutrition crisis in the mid thirties, when the, the shelves are being emptied in 1935 and 1936 as a result of the, the four-year plan and rearmament. And there's a deficit in foreign exchange. And so and then there's a bad harvest and the potatoes go bad. And this is all happening at the same time that they're tinkering with supply-side reform and trying to centralize distribution of food. So, But when the Nazis come to power, obviously they don't want to be seen as creating a, a famine, right? Like, so... Uh, the the Gao leader Josef Groa in Cologne Aachen starts sending up reports from one of the universities about how you can create uh, protein powder actually from whey out of milk. So all of these advances are seen as ways to address the pressing issue of the day, which is a nutrition crisis, and he can take credit for the people within his region having come up with the solution. Groa is approaching a local problem and trying to uh, find a solution that will keep the people behind Hitler and the party, but he's doing it on his own authority, that he's not referring to Hitler or anyone else. He's approaching a problem in his own way, but doing it in a way that he anticipates Hitler would support. Well, and that, and so that really is why the Gao letters rise to the position of the influence that they do, right? They're, they're political animals, they're remarkable political infighters, but they're also people who have rightly or wrongly garnered a reputation as someone who can get things done for the party within its area. So they're, they're given these broad-based objectives to pursue and attack whatever problem the party sees as the biggest issue of the day. So was Groa, was Greiser, was Forster working towards the Fuhrer? What, is, what does that mean to work towards the Fuhrer? And how do we see it in practice? So the term working towards the Fuhrer comes from a 1934 speech by the state secretary in the Ministry of Food, Werner Willekens. And he said, quote, Everyone who has the opportunity to observe it knows that the Fuhrer can hardly dictate from above everything which he intends to realize sooner or later. On the contrary, up till now, everyone with a post in the new Germany has worked best when he has, so to speak, worked towards the Fuhrer. Very often, and in many speeches, it has been the case, in previous years as well, that individuals have simply waited for orders and instructions. Unfortunately, the same will be true in the future. But in fact, it is the duty of everybody to try to work towards the Fuhrer along the lines he would wish. Anyone who makes mistakes will notice it soon enough. But anyone who really works toward the Fuhrer along his lines and toward his goal will certainly both now and in the future one day have the finest reward 
in the form of the sudden legal confirmation of his work. So this really speaks to this idea of what role the Gao leaders were fulfilling in the system and what was expected of them as, as leaders in the party. And, and also this undertone about recognition of efforts after the fact and the kind of backward, back, back, backward justification of outcomes. Yeah, right. he's saying, you know, if you screw up, you'll figure it out and, and you can go on another course. But if you get it, if you act without orders or instructions and you get it right, then you're going to get legal confirmation. Yeah, sudden legal confirmation, no less. That you you may, so long as you think that you are working toward what the goal that Hitler has set is, then that work will one day be recognized and legitimized. I, I really think that this this idea is fascinating because Kershaw is saying that uh, through this mechanism of working towards the Fuhrer, the whole state ran without any individual really making the big decisions. The, the whole thing was almost emergent that everyone decided for themselves, what do you think Hitler's Germany should be like? And then everyone went out and tried to make their version of this dream, their own interpretation. It's, you know, a, a bulldozer without a single driver. But it's also, it's not happening in a vacuum either, right? The Hitler is nothing if not prolific when it comes to public pronouncements about what the goals of the party are. And he does have a certain group of people who are empowered in certain ways to speak on his behalf and to set policy within particular spheres of life. You know, the, the ones who managed to collect the most, collect the most titles by best representing him in the early years. Uh-huh. So how polycratic is working toward the Fuhrer? When you have somebody who's definitely setting what the tone is, what the goal is, what the outcome should be. Boy, that's a good question. You know, I, I don't think that polycratic is quite the right word for this way of functioning. Uh, because each actor is not entirely independent. That they're working from some of the same assumptions and towards roughly the same goal. Hmm. I wasn't expecting that reception. <laughs> Well, I mean, it seems more like a, I don't want to say a collective form of decision making, but maybe that's not entirely off the mark. Everyone does what they think is right within the context of the regime and Nazi ideology. And those things which are well received after the fact are legitimized, right? So it, it doesn't even have to be Hitler that, that comes down and, and endorses a, a policy afterwards. If it's well-received by the people and or the party or some other uh, agencies, then it, it, is, it is policy. Mm-hmm. 
it's it does there's not a a central a central decision maker is not necessary and in that way i think that this is not this is not necessarily ruled by many independent centers of power as it is consensus emerging from many centers of power is that going too far well to this sounds like i i would wonder where one would break it off because to paraphrase stephen hawking here it sounds like turtles all the way down uh-huh like you know, okay, well, what about the Gao lighter? Well, the Gao lighter has to rely on his Gao clique. Well, what about the Gao clique? Well, the Gao clique has the various functionaries at the district and the local and the cell and the block level, right? Well, then who's who's really making decisions? The block leader? I don't think so, right? But the, the block leader is functioning in the same way. He is, but... Put a, put a pin in it that that for a second, okay? So like that's that's a good point, and we can we could definitely hash that out. But so we have that on the one hand, right? And then on the other hand, there is a real overlap of responsibilities and duties when you start to look at the nuts and bolts of administration beyond a theoretical level. This plays out really, really starkly in the case of political policing. And the attempt to gradually maneuver the police out from under ministerial oversight into an independent body. And then, well, do the governors and state administration and the district presidents still have oversight? Does the Gestapo have to report to them? Does it have to follow their orders? Do they have an advisory capacity or do they report to Berlin now? Right. And like, I mean, that's the whole fight that plays out between uh, between Goering, Himmler, and Frick as the uh, Prime Minister of Prussia or Minister President of Prussia, the head of the Prussian Gestapo and the head of the uh, Reich Ministry of the Interior, respectively. And that takes three years to be resolved and is a clear result of overlapping authority of the Ministry of the Interior, the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, and the governors within the state administration as responding to the Reich level rather than the state level. And so I know, I realize that that goes really far down the technical rabbit hole really quickly, but that's, you know, that would be the classic example of polycracy and these rival administrative centers creating friction within the system of who's actually in charge here. And I mean, like that battle goes on until 1937 when Himmler finally gets a de facto empowerment from uh or himmler finally gets a de facto empowerment from frick that says all of your decisions are valid as ministerial decisions and that's how they like he resolves by giving up but it's a seven it's a sorry a four-year battle but if we circle back to the block leader for a second you had a point oh well that everyone in their own spheres can and did operate in this same way if you're you're facing you know some uh local problem that you're trying to, to figure out how to how oh, i don't know uh re- recruit air raid wardens that you would think about how this this goal would be achieved in alignment with 
Nazi ideology as laid out by Hitler. Mm-hmm. Now, how how can you you do this in in a way that uh, bolsters bolsters the the sense of community that protects women and puts men in in a uh, role as guardian uh, that kind of thing uh, that these these little decisions by people way down the food chain can be resolved in the same way uh, without necessarily referring to the next person up on hierarchy of the party Mm -hmm. but those people don't have the power to wield i suppose you can generate you can generate initiatives and suggestions but the system working toward the sphere still requires a polycratic administrative style to work because the only way that an initiative is advanced is by somebody who has the metaphorical rhetorical muscle flex to actually push it through. They have to be able to grease the right palms, make the right honorary appointments, okay, have the authority over okaying the right paperwork of either somebody else or under their own right to advance whatever initiatives emerge. So there's still a, there's still a moment where the theory becomes practice that I think that polycracy remains quite important. So can, can you not have working towards the Fuhrer without polycracy? Like, do, do you need the competition? Hmm. Or is it just a case that it, competition is inherent to the system and it's almost never absent? Hmm. Cause I, I think that, that working, working towards the Fuhrer is just a way of doing things. Yeah, that that is a way that an individual approaches the decision at hand, uh-huh. and that this way of doing things functioned within a system that was very often divided between different factions. Well, is one a prerequisite for the other? Because, like you're saying, working toward the Fuhrer is just a manner of administration and um, a, a solutions, right? It is. It is necessary that there that it's not a, a hierarchical form of power mm-hmm. that it's, it's necessary that you are not t- going with your decision to a superior saying, this is what I'd like to do. This is why can I go ahead with it? Mm-hmm. If you say you have the support of your comrades, then just, why don't you just seize control as the famous letter grows? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all, it's all about uh, initiative and, and doing it. It's about being activated Uh and not needing that permission before you go out and do something. I would question whether what you're saying undermines the idea of hierarchy, right? Like you're being told to go out and act on your own initiative, but that's different than there being a hierarchy. The, there's still a hierarchy that confers legitimacy on your actions you're just being actively encouraged to go out and do them, to, to act, actively encouraged to act. Talk about Department of Redundancy Department. But the my, my question, or my point, I guess, is that you couldn't have this, it would, this seems at loggerheads with a legal bureaucratic way of doing things where there is a law and then somebody sets policy based on the law and then everybody acts according to policy. 
Yeah, absolutely. But there's still interpretation in that policy. And, you know, that's quite famously where people, where the mandates of particular state institutions change, right? Is when it gets ahead that's willing to go out and take initiative and reinterpret what that man, what the parameters of that mandate actually mean. Um, like judicial review in the Supreme Court in the United States. Uh, yeah, but but the difference there is that with the, the Supreme Court, they are reinterpreting a text, so a a specific thing that is laid out. Uh, whereas with working towards the Fuhrer, Hitler is very vague about his goals. So they the interpretation is first you interpret the goal and then you decide on the action. Uh, whereas something like judicial review, uh, you're not like the, the goal is not in question or, or well, I guess in this case, the, the original text is not in question. It's the interpretation you put on it. Chris, I'm saying that the Supreme court, if you actually go back to the constitution and the founding documents that are related to it does not have the power of judicial review. That is a power that was asserted by one of the Supreme justices in some time in the late 1800s. Uh, okay. Right. So, but it became a de facto power. So, I don't mean to muddy the waters. What I am trying to say is that even in a legal bureaucratic system, a leader who takes initiative and gets away with it still operates there. It's just that this is a system where that was meant to be the default operating structure, right? So how, how, many, how many bureaucrats say, Ask for forgiveness, not permission, right? Like it's a mantra. Sure. I mean, be, because in any, in any system, if you do something and get away with it, you have gotten away with it. But, <laughs> okay, so, so you're saying like, it, is it really that unique to Nazism? Is this way of operating uh, really something that's, that's special uh, in this case? Or is it just how people work? Well, there's a few questions on the table, right? First question is, is polycratic administration and the idea of working toward the Fuhrer mutually exclusive? No. Second, I, I don't think so at all either. Okay, so we can strike that one. No, no, well, I, they're certainly not mutually exclusive, but do they require each other? Or I guess does working towards the Fuhrer require a, a polycratic structure? And I guess if we can answer... One of these other questions, can a legal bureaucratic system have people operating in the way that Kershaw identifies as working towards the Fuhrer? If that's possible, then you obviously don't need a polycratic system for this way of doing things to work. So in an ideal, typical Weberian sense, no, these are, these are diametrically opposed systems, right? Like polycracy begets working toward the Fuhrer as a legal bureaucratic system begets strict adherence to policy. In reality, it's more just that you're more likely to see initiative in a polycratic system that has multiple power centers that you can play off against one another to advance an initiative and that are constantly looking for initiatives to advance their own center of power and expand it than in a legal bureaucratic system where those competencies are all strictly defined. That's my proposition. Give me that one more time. I'm not sure that I followed you. Okay. So in the Weberian sense, 
right, of ideal types. Polycracy is opposed in many ways to a legal bureaucratic system, just as a strict adherence to policy under legal bureaucratic administration is opposed to initiative and working toward the Fuhrer under polycracy, right? In reality, it do, I don't think that it necessarily precludes it, right? It's just more likely because a polycratic system has multiple centers, because a polycratic system has multiple centers of power that are all competing against each other and trying to get more of their neighbor's authority and are looking for initiatives that they can present as successes that will expand that authority, that system encourages initiative because there are people who have a vested interest in trying things out and looking for new initiatives and projects to advance as a way to expand their power at the expense of the other actors in the system. Whereas in a legal bureaucratic system where your responsibilities and your authority are strictly defined by the letter of the law, it is much more difficult to step outside that system. And there is a disincentive rather than an incentive for people to take initiative and move ahead on their own because, you know, because they're, they're violating policy in the entire basis of what the system rests on, right. As opposed to acting in accordance with it. Okay. I, I, I get what you're saying. I like it. Could I summarize it as working towards the Fuhrer is an optimal strategy for achieving uh, your personal goals and the goals of society at large in a polycratic system, whereas in a legal bureaucratic system, you might operate that way, but it's not the most efficient and effective way to do it. I would I would rephrase it as saying that polycracy and working towards the fear are complementary uh, or or symbiotic in some way, right? One encourages the other, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Okay. I could behind that. Absolutely. And I think that recognizes that they're not the same thing, but that they're certainly in Nazi Germany uh, operating hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, they're, they're it, working toward the fear is one of those situations where like with most grand theories, it's incredibly powerful and attractive because it has this element of truth to it that is beguiling, but there is a tendency to want to overextend it perhaps Mm -hmm. at the expense of other, other explanations. Whereas as we know, a singular explanation is never as stronger as, you know, a multivariate explanation for something. Uh Yeah, but it doesn't make it any less attractive. It working towards the fear is a sexy idea. It is. And it has a lot of explanatory power to it as well. But and I think that this is an issue with a lot of theories is that they don't take into account and not when you articulate a theory, you articulate a theory, right? It's up to other people and how they're going to apply it. Mm-hmm. But it needs, when you're applying it, you need to take into account how that actually plays out in the day-to-day realities of administration, which we also know, right? So, and the theory doesn't do away with those, those realities and those facts. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know. I think I feel I feel like I've learned something. 
yeah, I, I, I feel like I've taken some away from this too. Uh, I think that we've, we've fleshed this idea out pretty well, maybe even too far. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. We'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.